0: welcome to episode 333 of the Reformed Brotherhood I'm Jesse
1: and I'm Tony and we are proud members of the Society of reformed Falling podcasters down for you. there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. hey brother hey brother listen you know what the best meal is what's that chicken nuggets it's chicken nuggets isn't it
0: this took a, a turn that was slightly unexpected for me. I was just going to say the Lord's Supper.
1: Oh, yeah. Well,
0: yeah. Yes. But I understand. I set you up on that. And of course, we're going to get to this and this episode. We're going to have a great conversation about this. And people should know to start with, we're going to leave just like we did in the last episode that hopefully people listen to about baptism. We're going to lead all the stormy controversy aside. And again, talk about this idea of sacramentology manifest in the Lord's Supper, what that means and why is it a means of grace? All of these things will be answered to the fullest extent that we possibly can. And so that at the end, you will say, listen, that was the definitive episode on the Lord's Supper. (laughs) Actually, not even the definitive episode because we have a definitive series. So people are like, listen, I want that stormy controversy. I know that out of that reformation came all this controversy about what is happening. During the Lord's Supper and during this idea of communion, listen, you can have all of that and more if you just go back in time into the catalog and find that whole series where we covered all of the things.
1: Yeah. 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 If you're looking for the sort of historical theology conversation about the all the different views of the Lord's Supper and how they came about and what the difference is between Lutherans and Zwinglians and blah, 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 blah. If you're looking for that, go back. We did that. We did, I don't know, it was probably like eight or nine episodes. It was a long It was a long series. Um, and we got really good feedback on it. People thought it was really helpful. So if you're looking for that, we have it. But that's not what we're going to do today.
0: That's not what we're going to do. One of the things you can do, though, as you listen to this episode, is maybe play your own little fun counting game. And that is the number of times you're going to hear me say something like, more than a memorial.
1: Yes. We're just going to repeat that for the rest of the episode. Okay. But before you hear me say that again, let's affirm and deny a couple of things. What are you affirming with today? So um, I'm affirming, this is like a super niche, really specific affirmation. I'm affirming Keurig's customer support. So uh, I have a Keurig brewer. I think most people have a Keurig brewer. Uh, it's almost like a necessity these days, especially for me when I have a baby, I can't necessarily like spend time to brew an entire pot of coffee and I definitely need that coffee, Um so I did the descaling function. So like once every three to four months, you, you need to put this solution in there. It's basically like diluted hydrochloric acid or something like that. And every once in a while on the, the model Keurig that I have, when you're doing the descaling, from what I've read online, what happens is the trigger that tells the Keurig it's out of water stops working during this process. And so what it does is it superheats a very small amount of liquid, which then generates a bunch of steam and it trips this thermal sensor inside. So basically the Keurig overheats and there's no way to untrip this thermal sensor without taking the Keurig apart. So I looked online I tried to find everything I could. I called Keurig and they said like, uh, did you try turning it off and on again? And I was like, Oh, here we go. And they're like, just <laughs> unplug it, plug it back in. Okay. Uh, can you try a different outlet? Yep. I tried a different outlet. It's fine. Can you try something else in this outlet? Yep, that works. Okay. Uh, We're going to send you an email. We just need you to take a picture of the Keurig with the serial number and a handwritten note with your name and date on it, and we'll ship you a new one. Whoa. And I'm not even in the warranty period. So this was like a one-time out-of-warranty exchange, but it was super easy, super slick. And then they were like, and you can just keep the old Keurig. So if I really wanted to, there are all sorts of tutorials online about how to take the casing apart and to untrip this sensor. Uh, so now that I have a new one coming, when it arrives, I'll probably see if I can actually figure that out. Because then I've got two Keurigs. And Two Keurigs is better than one Keurig. So I'm just, I as someone who works, I, what I do is not necessarily, it's not really customer service. Um, what I do is more like patient advocacy, but there's a customer service element to it. So, as someone who works in that field now and has worked in straight customer service fields previously, I really appreciate when I run into a company that knows how to do customer service right. Um, you know, she, the the person who took my call, um, clearly had an accent. I'm sure they're outsourcing their uh, their support. I've got no problem with that. Um, but she she took my email down. She read it. She got it wrong at first. She read back through it again. Then she apologized for getting it wrong and and read it back to me again, like did that multiple times. Um, She was fast. She was efficient. She was was, um, like kind and like humorous. So it was just a really good, a really, really good customer service experience. And I want to affirm that.
0: I like that. And is that really delightful, too, when it comes at a time or in a place that's a little bit unexpected? Not mm-hmm. that we might look at Keurig and be like, man, they're a bunch of weasels and right. they're just really poor at
1: customer service. But for a coffee company that's making a coffee machine, it's not necessarily what you'd expect, right? Yeah. Well, and and they didn't have to do anything for me. Like th- there's nothing that right. obligates them. To, to do this. And for all they know, I'm never going to buy another Curie product again after this. So it's not like they're directly retaining my business, although they probably have made me a much more loyal customer than I might have otherwise been. So right. it's it, yeah, it's just, it was a really good experience. And I think that is missing in so many consumer areas right now for all sorts of reasons. Um, when you run into like really, really good we're just going to do the right thing and take care of this customer because we made a product that, even though it's outside of the warranty, this isn't his fault that this there's this this weird thing that happens with the Keurig Brewers. And so, even though we don't have to do anything, we're going to anyways. I just it was just a really good. It was a good experience. I'm happy about it.
0: And now here we are talking about it and mm-hmm. you affirming it. You know, th- this true. episode brought to you by Keurig Customer Service.
1: Not not true. I would be <laughs> remiss. Not actually a sponsor. Disclaimer. Hashtag disclaimer. That's right.
0: Asterix. Not actually a sponsor of the Reform Brotherhood, Mm -hmm. but you could be Keurig. You just let us know. So here's the thing. I'd be remiss given the whole nature and critical foundation of our podcast if I didn't say, wow, that experience and that customer service sounds a little bit like long gospel, doesn't it? You know, the fact that the law says, listen, you're out of your warranty period. They could have just rightfully and justifiably said to you, We've tried all our troubleshooting. I'm really sorry, but it's it's out of the warranty. You'd have to purchase a replacement. But for them to be so kind to you, and it sounds yeah. like like really ingratiating themselves yeah. to you, make it easy and still so want to send you another one. That is straight gospel right there.
1: Yeah. And it's a Saturday, like it's a Saturday. Um, the phone wait time, I only was on hold for like a minute and a half, maybe. Wow. So it was just from start to finish, it was easy to call. There wasn't a hundred different menu options deep to figure out where I needed to go. Um, it, actually, it's funny because you you probably remember our customer service experiences over the midwinter, no reason uh, vacation <laughs> of trying to get a exactly. silly, stupid little answer from our, our uh, ISP about a pricing question. And it was like every time you would call, you could tell they were trying to make it difficult to get to someone who could actually like talk to you about your problem. And this was just the opposite. They answered the phone promptly. They knew exactly what to do. They were able to guide me to where the serial code was. They provided me with replacement. I had an email, uh, the, the agent, you know, they were send. they were going to send me the instructions for this email on how to do the replacement photos and stuff. She waited on the phone with me to verify that the email came through, that I understood the instructions. Um, I did the photos. I sent them back and it was like, I don't know, like an hour later that they'd been reviewed and approved and my order was already in shipment. It was like the most seamless replacement. And I used to work in warranty replacement. So like, I know what good looks like. And this was really good. So if you are in the market for a new, uh, a new coffee brewer and you are thinking about a single serve coffee brewer, I don't really know how many other competitors there are. I mean, I know there are some, but Keurig is definitely the way to go.
0: I think I said before in our conversation, so I'm just going to bring it back. I do have this conviction that we should have conscripted customer service. Every person should be compelled at some point. Usually the better on the earlier in their career to do something like this because it's the most humble thing to have to serve people in this way and to learn to do it well, especially because often you're the intermediary. So somebody's upset about something and they're calling. You may have had nothing to do with that as a person representing the organization, but to try to solve the problem, to be kind, to listen, to be empathetic and compassionate. It's just a lovely skill. And I find that those who have served in those industries or in those spaces are just better adjusted in life. I'll I'll say it like that. So maybe I can wrap this around to like a slight call to action for everybody based on your great experience. And that is you and I both worked in customer service. We worked in the front lines of retail in various capacities. We know, and I'm sure many of our beloved brothers and sisters know the pains, the frustrations, and also the joys of serving in that way. So I would say this, here's the call to action. If you ever get great customer service, whether whether it's at like Starbucks or apparently at Keurig, I just realized I went all coffee on that, or (laughs) a hardware store, would you please say something to the person? Because customer service is the kind of thing that's usually a thankless job. It usually gets spoken about when things go horribly wrong. And of course, there's just an expectation that it will be smooth and go well. And therefore, when that happens, usually nobody says anything. So please tell the person that you're working with that they've done a great job. That was always something that really encouraged me. And I think also there's something, again, lovely about Christians affirming that in the real time that you're having the experience. So just tell the people.
1: Yeah, I have a whole file in my filing cabinet at work. Um, So for those who might not know, I don't know that we've ever talked about my current job specifically on the show. So I I work as a a patient service, um, patient family relations specialist at the hospital that I'm at. And so my job is anything from being kind of the general complaints department to sort of like the problem solver in chief. Um, And I actually have a whole folder in my file cabinet of thank you notes that I've gotten. It's not very thick. Um, I've, I've probably done 300 cases in the year and a half since I worked here. And there's probably only six or seven thank you notes in there. But they re- they really mean a lot to me. And when I have a really bad phone call where somebody is just rude and mean, and and people who are calling our office usually have a reason to be upset. There's very few people that call that I-, I listen to their story and I'm like that is really unreasonable for you to be upset about that. Most people have a legitimate complaint and a legitimate grievance that needs to be worked through, and that's that's my job is to work through those. But when I have a tough call where someone cusses me out on the phone or yells at me or I can't I can't solve the problem, um, these sometimes these are complex health issues and I can't I can't make it better for people, I actually will pull those out and look through them and sort of remember like this is why I do this job. I mean I'm I'm compensated fairly, but I I don't get paid enough to do this job just for fun. I do this job for these reasons. And I think customer service people, you know, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna try to track down this this outsourced person who works for Keurig and send them a thank you card. But at the end of the call, I said, thank you. You've been, you've been super helpful. This was actually a really easy, delightful experience. And she, you could tell that she doesn't hear that very often. So say thank you. I mean, whether it's the person who brings you your, your food at the restaurant or your doctor, that's a service industry, the bank teller. I mean, anybody who's, who you're engaging to do a service. Yes, they're being paid to do it, but we still should be saying thank you and being kind to them.
0: Yeah, I'll just echo that by saying, having worked in, in finance for all of my career for our various financial institutions, we get yelled at a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice, and like you said, not necessarily for bad reasons, because there's a lot at stake when it comes to people managing your money. But I like what you said. We're not saying like you need to write like some kind of great opus and send it to somebody. All you have to do is say like you just did a really good job. Thank you for helping me out, and yeah. that really really goes a long way. So I like to think we're full service on this podcast because. You've already gotten one affirmation, a call to action, something to improve your life and to help make the lives of others better. Uh, we could stop this thing right now, but we won't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What are you uh, What are you affirming? <laughs> you, just, you just seemed unimpressed with that momentum I was trying Sorry. to. Sorry. I was trying to look up something online and then I realized Jesse's winding up to finish this <laughs> segment. I better get back to it.
0: <laughs> I'll make my affirmation brief if I can. So we've been talking, we've been doing this amazing series on all things about the church. We are talking about the visible church, the visible church. We're talking about sacramentology now. And we're trying to tie all these things together about what it means to do life together in the place in which God has called us to worship and to live. And of course, that exists in this continuing, continuation of time and space in which all the saints are gathered. And then we have the local temporal saints being gathered in a particular place. So I'm affirming with the idea of doing worship and fellowship with other believers that are outside of your church. And I'm speaking about this now because upcoming in my own calendar is my congregation is going to have a Lord's day evening service that is joint. It's going to be in in combination with another church in our area that's not too far away, but of a totally different demographic, and we're sharing the burden and responsibility for worship through music, and the pastors are both sharing some kind of teaching that's going to happen on that evening. There's going to be a time of testimony, and we've done this before, and I will say I'm just always so impressed at the fact that I'm just not good at perceiving that even around me, there are just other brothers and sisters. And to be pushed outside of like kind of your normal rhythms of worship outside of the Lord's day and to gather with other people that are different than yourself, to remember there are others that are not you and there are places that are not where you are. And those two things are actually really close to where you're actually sitting at the moment. It's such an amazing thing. And here's maybe the scandalous thing. This church of which we're combining services, they're not even in our denomination, but I'll tell you what they are. They're Bible-believing. They are gospel preaching. <laughs> they have strong biblical fidelity, and so to get an opportunity, just worship with other people that you don't know that are actually part of your family, but just live a little distance away. Yeah. It's such a great thing. So, I don't know if if everybody's churches do this kind of thing, but I would say it's all up to us as part a parcel of the church to recommend this. Talk to your elders, talk to your pastor. Suggest so like something like this, yeah. that you might gather together for fellowship or for food or for teaching and do so with some other like-minded Bible-believing church that's local to your community, even if, even if they're not the same denomination. So I'm affirming with this idea of just getting together with other people in a formal way to worship together, to get to know one another and to praise God in our diversity.
1: Yeah. One thing I do to sort of like along that same vein of thinking is when I'm driving to work, I usually do this on Mondays, but I usually pick a day out of the week when I'm driving to work. And when I drive past a church that I know is an active church um, and not a, not a synagogue of Satan with Mary on front. uh, But when I drive past a, a Protestant church, um, I pray for that, the, that church. I, I don't know anybody yeah. at any of these churches. I've never met anybody, and I couldn't name a single actual person in any of these churches, but I know that they are churches that meet regularly. And so as I drive to work, I take a minute to pray for this church or that church. Um, I don't pass a ton of churches on my way to, to work, but uh, but it's enough for me to just think, all right, there, there are saints that are gathering there. And I think one of those things that we also need to remember is, you know, we kind of joke about like even people outside of your denomination, but the fact right. of the matter is like, those are, those are churches. Every church is a mixture of, right. of more or less purity. Right. So that was, we talked yes. about that in the visible church episode. Some churches are more, more uh, reflective of the truth of the Bible than others. And, but no church is perfect. And so when we recognize the the validity and reality of other local congregations, whether it's praying for them or meeting with them or, Recommending, You know, sometimes someone will ask me for a good church in the area and I'll say, well, are you looking for a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church? And if, you know, they say, well, I'm looking for a Presbyterian church, I, I know a good OPC church in the area that I'm happy to recommend to them. Um, you know, if they say, well, I'm looking for a, a Baptist church and, and I really like contemporary uh, music, then I know exactly which church in the area to recommend them to. And it's totally fine to, like, point people to right. another local congregation. We shouldn't have, like, a sense of competitiveness with other churches. And I think this this thing you're talking about, about, like, meeting with other churches, recognizing other churches, that helps us to sort of break that competitiveness that I think is really kind of natural for us.
0: Yeah, there's definitely something there about wanting to stay with kind, like like things with like things. And sometimes our theology can be this great hindrance in that way, especially over open handed manners, which we've been outspoken about before. What I love about this, and I guess I'm in some ways affirming my own church's leadership, which is making this a priority that at least like once a quarter, we try to do this thing. And I've just found it to be so enlightening and eye-opening to me and very convicting because again, it reminds me that there's so many in my community that are very different than me that have very different backgrounds. But when we come together and worship, it is in some ways, and I hesitate to use this phrase because sometimes I find it grating, but it is like this taste of heaven, this coming together of different people who love Jesus and are solidified in the fact that he is head over us and that he has justified and sanctified us. And when we come together to receive the teaching and to worship together, all the other things in some ways melt away. The idea that we have... Even if we have, let's say, more or less extreme positions on open-handed matters about matters of baptism or the Lord's Supper, still what we find is that we are all centered around Jesus. And so it is really an amazing thing to come and to serve along others. I like this as well. Like when we share the the responsibility for bringing together worship through music as we will on this particular Lord's day, we're actually working together with people that we don't normally work together with. We're learning from them. We're understanding them. And we're finding that we just have brothers and sisters that, you know, like it's great to walk into a room and you just know that even though you don't know these people, you know, these people, if that makes sense, that immediately you don't have to try to make friends because already you're family, and so I think that there's just something to be said for trying to gather together as the saints in your local community, spread across the lo- just the local congregation in which you find yourself on the Lord's day. So I'm just affirming with this uh, idea because I think it's fantastic and I would encourage others to, in their own congregations, try to promote that a little bit or speak to your elders, speak to your pastor and see if there might be some way to gather together, even if it's just once a year, to do something special and to get to know others who are your brothers and sisters that live maybe just adjacent to your own community. They're there. They're out there. Yeah. Let's
1: go. Find them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's negative. Boy, am I negative. All right. Let's ha- hear it. So I, I don't know why I'm asking. Cause I think you must have to live under a rock to not have heard about this. Um, have you read or heard about this art, this crazy article on the gospel coalition website? Yeah. 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 So yes. The Gospel Coalition, uh, I have a lot of strong feelings about the Gospel Coalition. Uh, yeah, it did. started out just fine, and it, now it's it's not really a coalition, and there's not a whole lot of gospel involved in most cases. Um, there was an article put out. The article is no longer available, uh, but it was an article that was an excerpt that was adapted from a book called The Beautiful Union, which is by Josh Butler. This is the... Blurb on Josh Butler from the Gospel Coalition website says: Josh Butler serves as a lead pastor of Redemption Tempe in Arizona. Is the author of the critically acclaimed books *Beautiful Union*, *Skeletons in God's Closet*, and *The Pursuing God*. He lives in the American Southwest with his wife Holly, daughter Aiden, and sons James and Jacob. So, uh, first of all, I'm wondering how the book *Beautiful Union* can be acclaimed when it's critically acclaimed when it's also still forthcoming, but we'll leave that to the side. So, I haven't read the book obviously. Uh, I didn't read the whole article when it came out. Um they have since removed the article cuz cause it caused so much controversy and replaced it with basically the entire first chapter of this guy's book, The Beautiful Union, um which the first chapter is called Sex as Salvation. So that'll give you an idea of what the article was about. And so on one level, um, I'm denying this article because it was just a—it's—it's a, it's a really misguided uh, attempt to strive for some sort of symbolism and metaphor that I don't think the Bible makes. So yes, people point at um, Song of Songs and say, "Well, isn't that just the same thing?" We don't have time to get into why it's not the same thing, but the answer is no, it's not the same thing, um, right. and also. God is the one who is responsible for his own self-disclosure and so if he if he were to choose to use um the sexual metaphor, uh, sex as a metaphor for the union between Christ and and a person who's being saved, that's his prerogative. But since he has not used that, uh, I think that Song of Songs is a metaphor or is a, an allegory, whatever we want to call it, about Christ's uh, love for the church. But that is is not a sexual metaphor. Um, the Song of Songs involves sexual imagery and and is, but it's not erotic poetry right? This book, um, and I'm going to read this chapter when I get a, get a chance here, but this article was basically, it used phrases like Christ penetrates us and was, was like using that un, unambiguously to be a, a, an analog to sexual intercourse. So this is just a really poor misguided thing. And I think we're actually going to, we might actually get into an element of this conversation during today's episode. The Bible gives us lots of symbolism to use. And these, any, any attempt to step outside of the, the symbolism that the Bible has actually given us to use is actually a functional denial of sola scriptura. So whether it's baptism or the Lord's supper, or whether it's reaching for extra biblical analogies for salvation or whatever, well, you don't need to do any of that unless we don't think that the Bible has it, has it in hand, Right. So I'm I'm not going to tell you to read this article or this chapter. Um, I think we're all reasonable people. If this is something you feel like you need to read to understand the controversy, you can access it. Um, the current title of the article that was once uh, was once an article called "Sex Won't Save You" is now called "Beautiful Union Book," uh, and you can get an excerpt from the entire first chapter and introduction of that book. But I think that this is just really misguided, and it caused a lot of controversy. And to be honest it made Christians look kind of weird and silly. Like we don't need to, this is like a pagan. I mean like classical pagan, like fertility cult, kind of a, kind of a move that was done in this article. We just don't need to do that. Our God is not like that. It's not, it's, he's not crass. He's not, you know, our, our sexual union with our wives is not, it's not somehow reflective of the way that God saves the church. And that just is, you know, I, I want to, I'll reserve any further comment because I haven't actually read the full article and I haven't read the chapter. Maybe I'll have more to say about it once I've done that, but it it was disappointing to see. And it makes me wonder, like, what is this guy preaching from the pulpit if he's writing books like this?
0: So here's the thing about this. I think knowing that there's more forthcoming, the book itself, I think we can agree. We can say on the face that this kind of smacks of this just kind of like sensationalism and this trying to create some kind of shock and awe with use of imagery that to me is unnecessary at best. And at worst, like you said, is really a perversion, like it's a tactic. And I don't like that. And so I think the average Christian, even the average evangelical would just read that stuff and be like, this is super weird. And I think that's saying a lot. So it's just not necessary. And we are going to get into this, I think a little bit in a couple of different fronts. One of which I totally agree with you is I, I want to say to people listen, the Bible gives us everything that we need for salvation and for life. And so it is complete in the way that it speaks about all of these things. We don't need to try to manufacture some more shocking metaphor to draw people in yeah. in some way to help them appreciate what it means to be in Christ. And this to me is a complete adventure in missing the point. And what's happened then, unfortunately, either it's 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 hit the mark because it created this controversy because the the metaphor is so weird and yeah kind of icky right like you read it and you just feel kind of gross and i think you said it best like to your point that's not the way god speaks at all about our union and of course the union that we have in the temporal space with our spouses is just a shadow a mere reflection of what's happening elsewhere it's not the whole it's not and and what's being made of here is as if to take that and to make it rather than a shadow to get the actual substance yeah and it's just an adventure missing the point, but I'm talking this up to, it's a great way to get a lot of attention yeah. and to try to make it seem like you should read this book because it's going to be an edgy reflection oh, yeah. in a new way of how to understand your relationship with Christ and Christ's relationship with the church. And to that, I would say, cut to Paul being like, uh, already covered this guys. Yeah. Stop
1: it." Stop Yeah. So I, I do want, just because I, I feel like when we level level some sort of, I don't know, charge, or when we make some sort of statement, I do think it's incumbent on us to back it up. So if you are listening to this, I don't normally have to give like parental advisories on this show, but I'm going to. So if you are listening to this with young children, or if you're in mixed company, and you are gonna feel awkward hearing this in mixed company, then fast forward maybe like two and a half minutes. But this um, this is from the first chapter of his book, this language, as far as I can tell, was replicated exactly. Uh, this is beginning at the top of page five in the PDF version that they provide. It says the Hebrew language is onto something. He went through this account of like the, the phrase went into in the Jacob narratives with the wedding nights. It says the Hebrew language is onto something, however, there's a distinction between the male and female roles in the sexual union. Each brings something unique to the fusing of two bodies as one, and this distinction is iconic. On the honeymoon in Cabo, the groom goes into his bride. He's not only with his beloved, but within his beloved and with and within are our, our emphasized here. He enters the sanctuary of his spouse, where he pours out his deepest presence and bestows an offering, a gift, a sign of pilgrimage that has potential to grow within her into new life. This is a picture of the gospel. Christ arrives in salvation to be not only with his church, but within his church. Christ gives Himself to His beloved with extravagant generosity, showering His love upon us and imparting His very presence within us. Christ penetrates His church with the generative seed of His Word and the life-giving Spirit, presence of His Spirit, which takes root within her and grows into, it grows to bring new life into the world. I, I was going to read more, but I just can't. Like, yeah, that's unnecessary. This is this is. Um, I'm actually much more angry about this than I was before, because although I had read excerpts, I hadn't actually read that much of it. Uh, This is just uncalled for. And I don't know anything about this guy's ordaining body, but I feel like they need to look at this and they really need to like evaluate whether this guy is fit to lead a church. And I, I I don't say that lightly, like. I very rarely will make a statement like that, but this is such a mishandling and abuse of God's revelation that it is, it's rank blasphemy. So we haven't talked about this yet. Uh, I think we're going to do a series on the 10 commandments coming up because that's where the confessions go in this sort of like broad systematic theology, but this is rank third commandment violation. Like this is just blasphemous nonsense. So I'm going to say, don't read the chapter. If you, if you really can avoid it, I think it's not edifying. It's not valuable. So yeah, I'm actually kind of sorry that I put that in your ear holes, but it is what it is. Does anybody
0: really gain anything from this metaphor? That's not already implicit in the gospels as we understand them. Like, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like really? So you have to make an argument, I think as a comment upon the author here, that what he's explaining in the metaphor that he's using is somehow superior to every other way. Cause if he's talking about the gospel then he's basically trying to help us understand what the gospel actually is and Christ's relationship with the church. Is that really superior to anything else, especially to the scripture itself? I would say that's a clear no.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We we need to move on or I'm going to get, I'm just going to get mad and that's going to be the whole episode. This is, yeah. Don't read this. Don't buy it. Don't recommend it. Don't write your congressman.
0: Do not Pasco. do not collect two hundred dollars. Just stop. do not did you say do not write your Congressman. <laughs> yeah, don't
1: write your Congressman.
0: <laughs> no, definitely write your Congressman. Say like, listen, I can't believe we can publish this stuff. All right. So here's my denial. I'll also keep this uh, pretty brief. I'm just denying like practical or functional deism. I've been thinking a lot these days and kind of meditating on God's sovereignty and providence and and especially like his purposeful sovereignty. And I was just really overcome with Matthew 10, especially like at the middle of the chapter there, 29 and following, where Jesus is talking about, he says like, you know, are not like two sparrows, so for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And you know, of course, I always took that as like, well, God just has like this, he's omniscient. He has this complete ubiquitous knowledge. And so when things happen in his world, he knows, he knows in part because he knows all things. He also is a good father and this is all his creation. So he's also aware of those things. And then I just became convicted. I was like, there are times where I think I actually function like practical ideas because I treat the natural laws that God has created as just like self-perpetuating. And of course, I'm happy to confess that all things are upheld by the word of God's power, that there was nothing that was created that wasn't created through Jesus Christ. Like all that's true. And yet I have this train of thought sometimes where it's like, well, yeah, the ocean goes in and out, the tides follow and that birds are born and birds die. They fall to the ground. Uh, I suppose, like in this passage, like either like literally out of the tree or out of the sky, they fall to the ground. Yeah, And then I really became convicted with this this thought. And you can use any analogy you want. You can go back to R.C. Sproul's like Maverick Molecule thing. But that the purposeful sovereignty of God is that he ordains all of these things. He's controlling actually the cycles. And then he just set the cycles in play. And then somehow he puts them on like automated mode with like his minimal amount of attention to them but that he is perpetuating them so that when the psalmist talks about like the sun rising and running its course like the bridegroom or like a strong man rather coming out of his tent like the bridegroom, that that is God initiating and using the full weight of his sovereignty and his purpose to make that happen. So, you know, sometimes we'll have this lovely debate of like, does it matter to God that when you wake up in the morning, like you eat Captain Crunch as opposed to, I don't know, like Bran Flakes? And I would say the answer is yes. And more than ever, I would say, not only is it yes, it's not just that he cares about those things. His character demands that he ordains all those things and he puts them into play. So it's not just that the cycles happen because God ordained them once. He ordains them all the time, every day, every second, every minute. Yeah, yeah. This is like an amazing kind of love that God has for the world in which he's created. And it should then give us greater confidence that everything that we encounter in the day even if it's something that's seemingly mundane, like the smallest minutia, God is actually setting that thing into play. And so we ought to move away from being practical deists for that reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Deism is one of those, like, it's the natural inclination of man. Like, Mm -hmm. I think everybody is uh, inclined to, naturally inclined to believe that there is a God. Um, They've done studies that like, children never have a period of time when they don't believe that there is some sort of like supernatural force like all children intuitively recognize that things don't just happen uh, it's not until later in life that that the idea of atheism creeps in even the children of atheists tend to have some sort of like supernatural de like theism kind of thing but deism is that natural inclination right we're all right. we're all inclined to believe that there's something out there and that that's something out there created all this and set it all up. But we don't want to be responsible to that something out there. We don't want to be accountable to it. And so we we instinctively push that away and think like, well, he'd set it up, but he's not around anymore. He, he made it, but he's not invo- invested in it. And that's totally the opposite of what the Bible has to say.
0: Yeah, that's and it comes to me like even at like a really strongly rooted level at the smallest common denominator So for instance this past week after I was thinking about this I drove into work and right as I turned into work There was there's this short tree at the top of the tree like in clear sight was this hawk The first thought that came to my mind after having thought about this was that It sounded like that hawk was perched there because that's what hawks do and hawks right. are going to do what hawks are made to do I thought god put that hawk there. Yeah, like in that moment he guided that particular animal to sit there, not for me, but for the fact that this is what his great will was. Right. So is like an idea that like, well, ants are going to do what ants are going to do. People are going to do what people are going to do. And dogs are going to do what dogs are going to do. If your dog is like barking at somebody right now because it walked by, it's because God is in that moment yeah. in his purposeful sovereignty, bring about the great work of his plan. And that plan is for your dog to bark in that moment. It's just that natural causes cause the dog to bark. Right. It's the natural causes themselves find themselves rooted in Christ upholding the word world by His word yeah. in that particular moment. So, I think that this makes God even more the great to all of us because, in a human level, we might say, "Well, who can sustain every single living thing at every single moment?" And that is our God, yeah, and there is no one like our God.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good uh, good reminder. All right, so let's.
0: I'm just going to come in hot to the topic. Are you cool with that? Let's Since do it we at like 35 after. Once again, the <laughs> affirmations and denials have run their course. But I tell you this, loved ones, it's because of God's purposeful sovereignty. True. God,
1: God put this affirmation in denial here. Providence! All right, so <laughs> we're talking about the Lord's Supper. And because I'm coming in hot, I'm just
0: going to introduce it this way. The Lord's Supper is this act of worship. And it does take the form of a ceremonial meal in which Christ's servants share bread and wine in memory of the crucified Lord and in celebration of the new covenant relationship with god through christ's death and it's amazing because again god has given us these prescribed rituals a supper it's a meal and i think we should start by talking about the fact that it has three levels of meaning for participants first it's going to have of course this past reference to christ's death which we remember second It has a present reference to our corporate feeding on him by faith with implications for how we treat our fellow believers, for how we're nourished in our spiritual condition. And third and lastly, it has a future reference as we look ahead to Christ's return and we're encouraged by the thought of it. All of these things are just impounded in this beautiful thing that God has given us. And I just want to say at the top that, as you already kind of teased at, Tony, this idea that there's so many things that we want to inappropriately latch onto by way of leveraging our senses to appreciate something about our faith. So sometimes that happens in like a second commandment violation. We so badly want to have some representation of Jesus, if only to latch on to, to see in a story or to be part of. And what God gives us in the sacraments are the proper things by which we can apply our senses to, to actually taste, smell, and touch. And the Lord's Supper is this amazing thing that helps us to do that. But it also conveys All of these benefits wrapped up in the three things I just presented.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, um, we're talking about something that across the board, the church has done throughout her entire history. So from the very earliest documents of the New Testament, um, right? I think, you know, first and second Corinthians are certainly not the earliest letters in the New Testament, but um, Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians and he's referencing a tradition that was handed down to him that everybody knows about as though everybody knows about it. So so the, right. the understanding of the Lord's Supper and what it is and how it functions and how we do it, that was established extremely early in the church. Um, and there's been, until the Reformation, and this might sound like I'm slamming on the Reformation, I'm not, there's been relatively little controversy about the outward practice of the lord's supper. So yes there's been controversies going back thousand you know 1500 years on what exactly the lord's supper is. So your roman catholic friend who tells you that the church has always believed in transubstantiation is just wrong even within the the roman catholic church I don't remember who was who, but there was a debate between someone named Rat Tramnus and Rat Bertus about the right. the nature of the Lord's Supper. And this right. was in like the, the eight or nine hundreds. Um, so it wasn't until the 1200s that it became formally defined as transubstantiation. So we have to recognize there is this through line in the history of the church. And that through line doesn't start in the New Testament. It actually goes all the way back into the Old Testament with the sacrament of the Passover, right? So there's this through line of this Ongoing sacrament that represents and not represents like like a symbol. I mean, it is a symbol, but represents to us, presents to us again and again the sacrificial redemptive acts of God. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a presentation or a representation of the Lord's sacrifice, not in the way that the Popish Mass does, where it's a re sacrifice of, of Christ, but it's a representation of that sacrifice given to us in whatever frequency we do it. We're not going to get into debates about frequency, but whatever frequency your church does it, that's what it is fundamentally. It's it's Christ's death. And I would say by implication, his resurrection being presented to us on a week by week basis or a month by month basis or however frequently you do it. And when you look at what we've talked about with sacraments, about how they really are like the visible promise of God given to his people, this is, This is the ongoing way that God reaffirms outwardly his promise to his people on on an ongoing basis. And and it's a proclamation we make, but more so it's a proclamation that God makes to us as we partake of it. Exactly. And in some ways, like we make to
0: each other, right? We talked about that last week in the context of baptism. Just like baptism, God has a similar plan for keeping us close to Jesus, even during his physical absence from us. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Christ, God's son, so that by believing in him, we might have life. And the sacraments are these amazing rituals that engage our senses in the act of remembering and trusting. So the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. Took it off. In it, we actually eat the crucified body of Christ, and we drink his poured out blood. It's an opportunity to truly commune with Christ if we understand what the meal means and how we should eat of it. And my fear as we talk about this is for many people, and this has been my own experience for a long period of time, is we undervalue what it actually means. It yeah. becomes a ritual again kind of strange expression or of just this kind of memorialization, as if we might go to somebody's gravestone and look upon the stone, read the inscription, and remember that they were with us at one point. But it's more than that. You know, the, the Lord's Supper is going to, for instance, teach us gospel. We have Jesus using bread and wine as symbols of his body and blood to declare the best news ever. Christ died for our sins. The bread helps us to hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. The wine tells us that whoever believes in Jesus shall never thirst. The Lord's Supper is like this amazing good news that you can taste and see. And I am so appreciative that God has given us something legitimately that we might taste and see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I want to read quick um, just because we like to read from the catechism. Question 168 of the the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism says, what is the Lord's Supper? The answer is the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to the appointment of Jesus Christ, his death is showed forth and they that worthily communicate feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace have their union and communion uh, with him confirmed, testify and renew their thankfulness and engagement to God and their mutual love and fellowship with each other uh, and as members of the same mystical body. So if if you think back to last week when we read kind of how are we to improve upon our baptism, this actually follows like the exact same basic outline of of the things that we do to improve our baptism you know and even even down to like emphasizing the unity with your christian brothers and sisters at the end. So I just I wanted to read that cuz I think it's important for us to sort of think through not only what it is from like a metaphysical perspective, just like we get caught up in like the questions of who gets baptized and how old are they and how much water to use. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, we get stuck on these metaphysical questions like is it really body? Is it really blood? How is Christ present? Is Christ present at all? Not not that those are not valid questions that we have to wrestle with. I think in large part, those questions have been settled, you know, depending on your tradition, the the answer is already there for you. Um, Of course, you have to go to scripture and you have to understand it from scripture, but it's not as though there's new ground to cover on this. But what I really like about this, uh, this sort of way we're approaching the sacraments is we're trying to push past those sort of like... They're not first level because some of them can get pretty technical, but they're sort of like first order debates that we have to have about these. What is it? What does it do? How does it function? Now we're pushing into sort of the practical element of like, now what does it do for us? How does it yeah, function exactly. for us? How does it actually bring about a growth in grace and increase in perseverance? How does it do that? And I think, you know, like right here, one of the things I think we miss a lot of times in our our zeal to uh, to enforce, not enforce our zeal to emphasize that this is more than a memorial, which it certainly is. Sometimes we neglect the fact that it is a memorial. It actually is a memorial. Not less than that. Right. But I think, you know, I, when I think, um, you know, I just had the one year anniversary of my mom's death. Right. I talked about that on the show and I didn't do like a memorial service or anything like that for her uh, on the year anniversary. But, when you do think through and have a memory or a memorial to a person you've lost, it's not like there's a metaphysical reality happening. It's not like you're, you're conjuring their spirit, but it's more than just a bare memory. It, you know, it's, I can have a memory of what I had for breakfast yesterday, right? I had a jalapeno bagel with cream cheese at, at work, right. And a cup of coffee. Sounds delicious. It was delicious. It was good. Although I had some heartburn, like that's a memory. I don't have a memorial to I don't have a memorial to what I had for breakfast yesterday. Right. Like when we when we have a memorial service or we put up a memorial to somebody, it's a it's an active real presence not of that person, but it's an active real presence to call to mind and to bring us in in many ways in mind and spirit to that person. Right. So maybe it's you eat their favorite food or you listen to their favorite song or you, you know, you you think about a particular place you went with them. And the idea is like you bring yourself to that place in a, a attempt to be and feel close to that person. The Lord's Supper is very much that. And because right. it is God affecting this memorial, it's actually closer to and actually is bringing you into the presence of this person. Yes. Exactly. So it's it's a real union and a real communicating of God's presence, of Christ's presence specifically in the supper, but not carnally, not not by way of body, not corporally. It's not that God's body is present, it's that Christ brings you into his presence spiritually and unites you further to himself by faith by the power of the spirit. And that there's some, there are some weird complex metaphysics that play into that. But fundamentally, the Lord's Supper is about union with Christ on an ongoing basis. And all of the stuff that's here in question 168, all those things, they all are subservient to that. They all bring us to that. They all emphasize that. They all work to reinforce and in some ways to affect that union with Christ.
0: Yeah, I like that because what you're emphasizing is there's something that's actually happening to us in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Right. That the scriptures teach that God establishes the Lord's Supper as this means by which he testifies to us and then strengthens us in our salvation in Christ by sealing to his people Christ's twofold benefits, justification and sanctification. That's actually happening. And so I think actually it's the brilliance of God that it doesn't get wrapped up in the metaphysics of the elements themselves. There is a mystery here that I think is totally fine to embrace and to settle into with great comfort. But, you know, in my own church, we're using like the communion munchables. you know, like the yeah. little stacked like package of like bread. And, you know, depending on what your tradition is, you may have something that you'll be like, this is barely bread. And yeah. uh, I would say it doesn't matter. Like the, the whole point of what we're talking about here is the brilliance of God to affect change in our lives, to bring strength to our spiritual condition by understanding that we are supping with him and that we are feeding on him. And so in the Lord's Supper, we do more, like you said, than just remember. It's not less than that. But you could remember to take, you know, life-saving medicine, but not actually take it. And so unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in Him. To be saved from our sin, we must actually accept God's gift of righteousness with a believing heart. That actually happens in the context yeah. of the Lord's Supper. It's a practice that God summons us to. He calls us to. You participate in obedience. And so it's something that we really ought to give time to in our consideration. Yeah. And be prepared for. And so, again, my feeling is I don't know where you're at on this, is as often as I can do that, I want to do that. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of proper boundaries and conscriptions and around the institution of the Lord's Supper. And again, that's something that we've covered in the past. But as often as, so in other words, if like given all those things, if they're all satisfied, if somebody's like, do you want to do this thing? I'm going to say yes, because like there is an actual spiritual strength that we receive from partaking in this. And again, it's happening, of course, in the context of Christ's church. That is, you're sitting shoulder to shoulder, you're participating, you're sitting at the table, you're eating together with loved ones who have been saved, justified, sanctified, and redeemed by Jesus Christ. This is all part of what it means to come to the Lord's table yeah. and to have communion with him.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good uh, a good reminder too. And one of the things that I think we sometimes... Um, I used to have very very strong opinions about how frequently we should do the Lord's Supper, and and maybe the, to my own shame, I guess I had even stronger opinions about people who had different opinions than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to look at churches that would do this once a quarter or once a year and just be like, what, what, what are you doing? I I have since learned that the the wisdom of the local plurality of elders to know what their local body needs and how to administer the word and the sacraments to their the the sheep under their care i've since come to a conviction that that is almost almost absolute and this kind of goes to that like conversation we had about like not making your private business public like right. in some ways like it's not any of my business how frequently the church down the street does communion um, it really isn't, and so i'm I should have some say, I mean, I'm an elder in my church, so i I have say in I don't know why we would ever change our practice, but if we were discussing changing our practice of our our local church, I would have some say in it as an elder in the church um because we would have that conversation as the the elder board to discuss like why are we doing the Lord's Supper or do we want to change the frequency? Not that we're having that conversation, but that that would be a conversation to have as an elder board because that's who's responsible for the administration of the sacrament. But I think you're right. The Christian who, and this actually goes to where I wanted what I wanted to talk about next. The Christian who is given the opportunity to partake in the Lord's Supper and says, for whatever reason, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't really want to do right. that. That to me is a strange thing. And. Right. I, th- I want to be careful again, because it's the it's the responsibility of the the presiding elder over the Lord's Supper to fence the table. And different traditions do that in different ways, but I want to get into that. But there sometimes can be a tendency within different Christian groups. And I think this is actually more of a tendency that lives within the Christian themselves to sort of take the Lord's Supper and turn it away from being gospel and into law. And there's a lot of like unhealthy introspection of like, am I good enough to take the Lord's Supper? Am I worthy enough to take the Lord's Supper? That is absolutely not what the Bible is talking about. It says we have to participate in a worthy family. We should examine ourselves. We absolutely should examine ourselves. But I want to read, um, I think there's a similar statement in the Heidelberg Catechism, but I don't know for sure. So don't quote me on that. But this is question uh, 172 of the Westminster uh, Large Catechism. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's supper, right? So it's it's saying yeah, should yeah. someone who is not sure whether they should come to the table come can can they come to the table? May they come to the table? Here's the answer. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's supper may have true interest in Christ though he not be assured of it yet. And in God's account Hath it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it and the unfeigned desire to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity, in which cases, because promises are made and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, he right. is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved, and in so doing, he may and ought to to come to the Lord's Supper, then he may be further strengthened. So one of the things that the Lord's Supper is intended to do is to proclaim the gospel to Christians, right? right? We talk about it frequently that like Christians need the gospel, just like non-Christians do. It serves a different purpose for us, but we need the gospel too. And the Lord's Supper is one of the primary ways that the Lord gives us his gospel. So when we are coming to the table and we have doubts about our assurance. We're not assured of the faith. We're not assured of salvation where we feel like we're not doing well. We, we recognize that we're sinners. Like those are actually good things. Those are things you want to be doing when you come to the table. The person who comes to the table is like, I'm all good. I've got it all settled. I remember, I remember distinctly, I was a brand new baby Christian. Like I became a Christian on January 23rd of, of, uh, 1998. Right. Right. And I was at a a winter camp in February of that year. If I remember, I was probably like February 7th or 8th. It was sometime that first weekend of February. And at this camp, and we can talk about this a different time, but at this camp, we would do communion on the Saturday night. This was just the typical way that the youth group did did camp. You'd have communion on Saturday night. There was like a prayer service. And I remember I sat down when you went to go get communion, you would go in and you would pray with one of the leaders and they would talk to you about where you are in your spiritual life. And then you would, when you were done, you would pray with them. Then you would go and you could take communion if you wanted to. I distinctly remember sitting down. I know his name is Jeff Berg. He was my confirmation leader. I sat down with Jeff and he said, how do you think you're doing? I said, I think I'm doing pretty well. I don't think I sinned this week. And Mm -hmm. he, he looked at me and he actually kind of chuckled. He said, well, I don't think that's the case, Tony, but I'll, I'll pray for you. Let's let's pray. You know, he was very he was very kind and very gentle. And over the next course of like the next six months as my confirmation leader, he helped me immensely. But he just kind of looked at me and was like, I, I don't I, I think you probably have. And I remember thinking as I went to that table, like, oh, I'm good to take communion because I haven't sinned this week. Right. How easy is it for us to do that? That's actually the person that I think Paul is probably talking about when he says you shouldn't partake unworthily. If you don't think you need the body and blood of Christ, you're the last person who should be taking communion. The people who are beat up and broken down and desperate for the Lord's salvation— You may feel like you're the least worthy person to take it, but that's actually who should be taking communion the most, because it's there for our assurance. It's there for our growth and grace. It's there to confirm and communicate the promises of God to us. And who needs the promises of God more than sinners? Nobody that I can think of.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right about that. And this is where God is so brilliant in the way that he gives this to us and gives us something that we can properly comprehend, even in our fallible and weak state. And that is, let's say, I don't know, you've had a long physical activity or you've had just a long day and you're famished. You understand what it means to be hungry for something that gives you sustenance again. And so God draws in this amazing parallel with the Lord's supper. It's everything you just said. It's the Lord's supper tells us to believe in the gospel, tells us it's a command. It draws us into that. And then, You beat me to it. I was going to say how the Lord's Supper promotes assurance. Yeah. Those two things, like the fact that it tells us to believe the gospel, it promotes assurance. We're already well beyond, like, wherever that line is of, like, just the memorial, it's way more than that. Like, we we can see that line, but it's really far behind us. We passed it because to just say that, like, we're just remembering that God is good to us or that Jesus lived and that he died is to cheapen what happens when we consume something. It becomes part of who we are. It gives us strength and nourishment and energy. So Jesus' body and blood were given to nourish the soul for eternal life. And so when we taste and receive the elements of the supper, that's exactly what we're doing. Eating the bread and drinking the wine is Jesus' way of allowing us to put our finger in the mark of the nails and our hand in his side. It's as close as we get on this side of glory to literally touching our Lord. So that's why it's it's got to be more than just saying, we're drawing to mind or giving intellectual assent to yeah. something that actually occurred in the course of history. We're saying that this gives us more than that, that it is an actual means of grace that you arise from your seat after partaking. Let me say it this way. This could be controversial. Maybe if you're, a, you belong to a church as I do that there's a regular cycle of partaking in the Lord's supper. That is, it's offered not every week, but on some kind of regular cycle. The argument here that I'm making is that on the Lord's day, where you participate in the Lord's Supper, you actually should arise in a different state and condition than any other Sunday in which you don't partake of it. Yeah, that—that that is actually how meaningful and important it is. That is how pro- proactive and profound it is as a means of grace and as a means of strengthening. And we started this whole thing, or at least I did, back several episodes ago, talking about how you know Calvin was very keen to say that the sacraments are given to us in our infirmity; that we needed strength, we needed guidance, we needed a physical representation of god that comported with the way in which he prescribed worship for us and the sacraments were that prescription and so instead of just making what's here's what's odd i've interrupted my thought several times tell me if you ever thought about this tony like here's what i find like so ironic is we take the things that God has told us you ought not to do. And we bring physical manifestations into those things. And we have a temptation to to treat the things that God has given us to do in the sacraments that actually allow physical representation and appropriate connection to our physical senses. And we belittle those
1: things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I think, I think we, um, I don't know what accounts for it. It'd be a really interesting study to do, but we strive to find symbols Symbols where oh, sure. they, they we don't need them yes. Um, yes. and to find symbolism. Sometimes this takes the form of like extending a metaphor, right? So like this, this article that I'm, I'm so frustrated about it's is so exactly so like, amazing. like we're given the symbolism of marriage. So yes. now we have to extend that to like a crass symbolism of the sexual act, which yes, right. a healthy marriage is, is one that involves sexual intercourse. Like that's, Amen. that's a part of a healthy marriage. But that's not the metaphor they've all used, right? So why? Right, right. And I think we do the same thing with the Lord's Supper, right? We we find ways to extend the symbolism or to add symbolism to it. There's all sorts of ways to do that. I'm not going to get into specifics because that's not really the point. There are all sorts of ways that churches extend symbolism. Like I think your favorite your favorite uh, favorite one to bang on is um, the phrase like "Here's Christ's body broken for you." Right? Yes, like there, right. there are churches that really lean into that broken language and make right. that like the central part of the metaphor. Like that's not even a word used in the Bible to speak of exactly. that, Right. And in yes. some ways, as you've pointed out, I think aptly in the past, like actually, the idea that Christ's body was broken is problematic if we really want to use the language strictly. So I think you're right that we, we find ways to add symbols where they're not necessary. And then where God has given us these ordained symbols and these ordained metaphors to use, we sort of like neglect or minimize them. And we try to like, I feel like sometimes we try to outsmart the Holy Spirit. If yeah, that makes for sense. sure. sense. One of my favorite, um, my favorite sort of like like 16th century smackdown, uh, moments is the question 98 of the Heidelberg catechism. And it's, it's about images of Christ, but I think it applies to like this conversation we're having too. the question is, may we not have pictures as books for the laity, right? So the idea was like, there are some people who can't read. So can't we have like pictures in order to teach and the answer, and depending on which translation you look at it, it's more or less, uh, Smackdown. But the version that I've memorized is no, for we should not be wiser than God, who will not have his people taught by dumb idols, but by the living, lively preaching of his word. Right. But this like applies to this. Right May we not invent new metaphors for the salvation of sinners. No, we might not, we must not be wiser than God, who will not have his people taught by uh overly graphic descriptions of sexual intercourse on a gospel coalition article, but by the lively preaching of his word, right? Like like this is, the, this is the way like let's Mandalorians coming, came back a couple days ago. So this is the way <laughs> I'm all over the place. Jesse, you got to save me. You got to save me here. So the fact that this is what people expect from us now, Tony is yeah.
0: that you draw back. We, we do a reprise of the original denial. And then at the end of that, you'd somehow smuggle
1: in the Mandalorian. You had <laughs> me. Yeah, this, is the this is the way I have spoken. That was one of the tragedy. just, just to totally digress. That was one of the tragedies of the first season. Is that that uh, I am the way guy? He got taken out so easily. It was pretty sad. Spoiler oh, alert. So not to ask, did you watch the first episode? of season I haven't seen the first episode of, of the season yet. No. Ah! So ah! I feel like you just asked me that question I as wait. a spoiler. Uh,
0: yeah, sorry. It's I just okay. no, not not really. I just I think you're uh, gonna like it. You also have a, a little child, so I think that. You will like it.
1: I, yeah. my I mean, my baby, he does look like baby Yoda. I think, I think Augie is cuter than baby Yoda, to be honest. Well, that's, I mean,
0: listen, that is objectively true. And I don't just say that as his uncle and godfather, but uh, as a person who has seen many babies.
1: It's true. It's true.
0: Yeah, it's, it's true. We really need to wrap this up because I realize that last statement from mine is somewhat creepy. So <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I, just, uh, I
0: just want to get beyond that now. So, I, I listen. I love that Christians want to process and parse out the Lord's Supper. I think, like, we made this kind of clearing call. I hope in the last episode we talked about baptism, getting back to the center of the sacrament. And that's really the thing we ought to be about. And it's lovely. Listen, you want to sit down with your brothers and sisters and have like this amazing dialogue or robust conversation or debate about all of the accretion that surround it. That is fine. But at that, we should really be concerned about making sure that we are honoring it, that we're participating in it, and that we understand the reason why God gave it to us and how it is a means of grace. So maybe we didn't answer all those things. And so then I'm only hopeful that people go out on their own. As you said, they're all reasonable people. Process that with your elders, with your other fellow congregants, with your pastor. But let's make sure that we actually get about that so that whatever your schedule is, whatever your frequency, the next time that you're sitting there and the elements are being administered to you, that we're actually supping at the Lord's table and that we are appreciating everything that God has done and why he's given us that sacrament.
1: Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that's as good a place to stop as any. Uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week yet because we haven't figured it out, uh, but it'll be good. And I'm excited about it because I'm always excited to record. So it's a little peek behind the scenes for the, the crowd here. Um, if you are excited about this podcast, we would love it if you would go to iTunes and leave a review and a, a rating. We would love it if you give us a five-star rating, but we would much rather you be honest. So uh, we do read those ratings. We do love to see them. Uh, and also you can uh, join our Telegram chat. You can go to t.me slash We had a very, very vibrant conversation by audio messages the other day about the moving of the Sabbath from uh, the seventh day to the first day of the week, so there's always good things going on, and there's always good chats going on. Uh, we had a conversation about uh, election. We've got, I mean, there's just always good chats going on there. Um, great group of people who just love to to have good theological conversations, love to pray for each other and to encourage people. So I would I would really love it if you join the chat t.me slash perform brotherhood, and you can also go to our website. Uh, there's a number of of ways to get in touch with us there. Uh, a number of things. you can do to support the show. We would really appreciate if you would check out one of those spots.
0: And by going, we haven't said this in a while by going to the website. If for some reason you're inclined with the thought that you would like to have some kind of memorabilia, <laughs> it's all about memory, of the Reformed Brotherhood, That's you can find links to that there. There's t-shirts, mugs, all kinds of stuff. I have to say, you and I have been talking, of course, spoken about this, but I was at a get-together last week this time and there was a dear brother there wearing a Reform Brotherhood T-shirt. It nice. was it was old logo, so I said to him, "Listen, you got to get like that refresh. Yeah, stuff that's like on point now." Um, but I will say it was very uh, awkward speaking with him while I was looking at my own face on his chest.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I'll, I have every once in a while I'll I'll bring a Reform Brotherhood mug or something to work, and people people will stop by my desk, and you can see them sort of notice it, and they sort of like. They're trying to make eye contact with me, but they're they're kind of like their eyes are gravitating to the mug. And at some point I have to just be like, yeah, that's my face on the mug. Yeah, <laughs> I have a podcast. It's, yeah. I, yeah, it's weird. I love it's it. weird. Let's just I love it.
0: it. I love it. And, and I would be remiss if I said, of course, like the whole purpose of that site, of that little store that we have, is to provide some fun stuff if you'd like to. And, and a portion of anything you purchase there actually goes to cover all the costs here. So yep. you're making sure that it remains available free of charge for everybody. And of course, we are so grateful for those who contribute in that way. So I think that's it, Tony. I think, again, I would point people back to our really long series. Uh, That's not a pejorative. Really purposefully, appropriately linked series.
1: And that's not long, it's in-depth. Comprehensive.
0: Critical and evaluative. We interrogated Yes. Well, all the different views in the theological history of the Lord's Supper go back and take a look at that and then you'll listen to this and be like wow that was like the perfect compliment that was like I had like a five course meal and then
1: this episode was like dessert Yes. and I would say to you yes I'm surprised that the phrase amuse-bouche didn't make its way in there oh Jesse God. likes to use that phrase as often as he can
0: <laughs> so more than a memorial okay so until next time let's honor everyone love the brotherhood Bye.